If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We'll be continuing to go through the book of Acts. Some of the scriptures will be on the screen. Um, otherwise, there's, if you didn't bring one, there should be in many of the rows at least a Bible you could borrow there. With so many obstacles seemingly stacked against the work of God in your lives, in my life, and the lives of Christians throughout the world, it could seem at times that whatever these obstacles are, they're just going to get the upper hand. That the gospel going forward in the lives of people, that it just feels like the situation's too broken, it's too hopeless, there's, there's, there's just no way that God is going to win. What I hope as we study Acts chapter 5 is that we'll be encouraged that God's grace is unstoppable. And that's a good thing for them in this passage and for us in our world as well. I'm going to read um, from Acts chapter 5 verse 17 all the way through verse 42. It's a longer passage, so I'll do my best to read it. Hopefully you can do your best to follow along. Um, I'll tell you what's going to happen in the story just so you're cued in beforehand. The disciples are preaching and they've been arrested. And then they're miraculously released. And then they're caught again. (laughs) And they have to give a defense of what's happening and why it's happening. And then this one from within the Pharisees uh, himself stands up and gives his own speech. And then they're beaten and released. So that's the story that we'll spend a half hour or so studying. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of oh sorry I lost my place verse 24 Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to And someone came and told them look the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people Then the captain with the officers went and brought them not but not by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness 
of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took this advice and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and pre- preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I invite you to pray with me one more time as we begin to study this together. Heavenly Father, I think of the extraordinary thing that's happened here in this passage. We can read it so quickly. But as I try and put myself in their shoes, in the fear that they would have had, to be tried by the same council who just perhaps six weeks earlier had tried and crucified Jesus and now they're being told to cease and desist. And yet they seem fearless. Lord, something has changed in their lives. Lord, I pray as we study this passage and that we would gain a greater realization that the God who is Peter's God and John's God and the God of the, these apostles in the gospel is our God too. And I pray that that would encourage us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've been thinking, especially over the last few weeks and months, about our church and my role here as a pastor, one of the pastors here of the church, and I've been thinking a lot about phrases like market share and niche and competitive advantage, even even brand positioning. I know these are weird words that we don't usually use in the church very often, but I've been thinking about them, and I've been thinking about the main things I'm called to do as your pastor, and the things, conversely, that I'm maybe not called to do as much of or as well as. Thinking about the main things we're called to do as a church, 
And as we gather here each week, under the word of God, under the banner of the love of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what I don't have are this phrase that's become so popular, life hacks, right? These little things, you're going to tweak your life and, and, and this or that will go better. I'm not against those things. I just don't have them. I, I don't have better ideas for productivity. I don't have 10 steps for this or that. You know, you change this one thing and then, you know, these clickbait ideas and titles. I, I, I don't have those. I don't have 10 steps for parenting without losing your mind. <laughs> I wish I had a few of those. I, I don't have 10 steps for more zing in your marriage. I don't have 10 steps to find a spouse for those who want to. As I think about market share and niche and competitive advantage and brand positioning, was divine brand positioning, so to speak. Like, what, what does this one thing have to offer that other things don't have to offer? As I think about us in this church, what I would have to offer each week would be the knowledge of God from the Word of God. And if we have that, though, we, d- we don't have something small or insignificant. Sort of like breathing. There's no, like, deep breaths you can take that you can say, I'm good to go for the rest of my life. Like, that was a good breath, (laughs) right? There are things in our lives that we just need to come to again and again and again. And as we gather week in, week out, what we have, what I have to give, the word of God and the knowledge of God. I'd like to be more productive. I'd like more zing in my marriage. I think I have some zing. I don't even know what that means. Uh, I think I have a little bit. We have a little bit of it. We have more zing. Um, And the Bible has things to say about marriage and productivity and parenting and finding a spouse. But that's not mainly what it has to say. A few weeks ago, um, we had my ordination service on a Sunday evening. I was given this book by Mike and Carolyn. It's called Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. The original copyright I was glancing at uh, before, uh, in between services, is 1961. Looks like copyright information is correct. He died in 63. So he wrote this near the end of his life, after reflecting for a lifetime about who God is. I read this book years ago and, and, and probably will hope to read it again, reread it again this year. It's been so long. But there's a, a famous is probably not the right word, but there's a, a familiar, at least to some, an opening line here in chapter one of the book, which Mike is two years ago, you probably won't remember, but read this in the beginning of one of his sermons as he preached to us. The line goes like this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Start with the provocative statement, right? What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is either pure or base, as the worship entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most 
pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he, what he in the deep crevices of his heart believes God to be like. We tend, he says, by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So whatever we're believing about God, our lives just tend to drift that direction, he says. This is not only true of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. I'll be done in just a moment. One more paragraph. Were we able to extract from any man the complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? If we were able to take that out and just list it, if we could do that, he's saying you can't do that, but if we could do that for an individual, continuing, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. I mean, he's got a whole book to defend that thesis. But he's laid his cards on the table, so to speak. Which is another way to say that preaching is not simply advice or suggestions. It's not mostly about doing X or Y or not doing Y. It's about laying before people the reminder of who their God is or could be if they would want a relationship with him. As we look at this passage here in Acts chapter five, it might feel a little bit like a repetition of something you've heard before. And in some ways it is. In Acts chapter four, there was a story of a catch and release, so to speak. The disciples were preaching, they're caught, they're released, and they're told, don't do that again. And what are they doing in Acts chapter five? They're doing it again. But what I wanna highlight is that it's not simply a repetition of what's come before, there's an intensification that takes place. Where before they were caught and released, now they're caught and beaten significantly. Every commentary I looked at said they received the, what the beating here that's referenced at the end of the passage is codenamed for the 39 lashes that was the standard beating. It, this was no small thing. And so we have a repetition but an intensification. It's not just Peter and John, it's all the apostles that are beaten which is preparing us for Acts chapter 7 where the first martyr takes place, which prepares us for Acts chapter 12 where another martyr happens, both first of Stephen, then of James. And so if we ask the question, where does this boldness come from? The only answer I have is God. They knew their God and that changed everything about everything for them and I think it could for us as well. So here's what I want to walk through in this passage. The God who answers prayers, the God whose grace can't be stopped, and the God who changes lives. Let's start with that first point, the God who answers prayers. You might not see this one at first as clearly because you're like, well, where are they praying? Where's the prayers? Like, where, where does that happen in these verses? It actually doesn't happen in the verses of, that, that are here before us. But it happened a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to go back there. Um, after they had been threatened and released, they gathered together, it says, with their friends in verse 23. These Christians that they had locked arms with. 
And it says they gathered together for prayer. So I'll read verse 24 and verse 25. Or excuse me, not 25, down to verse 29. And when they heard it, that is what they had been threatened with, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then he goes on. Coming to verse 29, still in the prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And then the prayer goes on for another verse. And I highlight that going back because I don't want us to forget that when they prayed for boldness in chapter 4, when they're all of a sudden preaching with boldness from chapter 5, that didn't come out of nowhere. It's an answer to prayer. I think about this release from prison, this supernatural release from prison. What an encouragement that would have been. Here they are, they're locked in jail at night. And an angel of the Lord comes and releases them. Behold the kindness of our God. Dropping encouragement like rain in the desert. I'm sure they were just going, well, I don't know, this is, it's been a good run, should we call it quits? And an angel came to him and says, don't call it quits. Press on. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 7. This is some words from Jesus about prayer. Jesus in a sermon, he, he had this to say. Oops, that's Mark. <laughs> Didn't look right. All right, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 Jesus told the disciples, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son, a child he loves, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then... Notice this kind of just throwaway phrase. If you then, who are evil, (laughs) know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's saying, you're God's children. And if you need daily bread, he's not going to give you a stone and say, chew on this. Brought a couple things um, up here with me this morning. I don't normally have show and tell. We'll get a little show and tell. We'll be back like middle school again. So this looks like a book. In a sense, it is. It's a, a journal of sorts. And, and mostly what is in here, um, like probably many of your journals, so I, I feel confident saying this, um, a ton of blank pages because <laughs> the journal got started and put back on a shelf um, for all the reasons you and I both start things and then don't finish them. But, but this was a prayer journal my wife and I started years ago, and I hadn't taken it off the shelf in years. Uh, just for example, the last prayer request in here, so handwritten, prayer request 152. We pray that the Lord would greatly bless and strengthen Remington and Valerie for the re- and the rest of the mission team as they prepare for six years of ministry in the Middle East. They were going to Beirut, Lebanon. They've been home for six years. <laughs> So I hadn't taken this off the shelf in 12 years. 
But my wife and I, even before we were married, we, we started this journal and got to at least 152. Um, I'm going to read you, just, I'm up here, I can do what I want, I guess, for a few minutes, so I'm going to read you the introduction. Um, so January 23rd, 2005, just to kind of open and page I wrote here. On January 23rd, 2005, we dedicate this journal to record our prayers and petitions, our successes and shortcomings, our worries and worship and our dreams and desires. Lord, may you cause your face to shine upon us and teach us to live eternity conscious in time. May you give us the grace to trust you in the times we are quick to doubt and the strength to persevere and finish the race. Help us to record your provision and providence in our lives together as we encounter obstacles and difficulties in this life. May we commit them to you, knowing that you are rich to all without finding fault. It's an allusion to a verse in James. As you answer and provide in ways expected and unexpected, allow us to keep the record of your building your kingdom for our faith and for others. Sanctify us through and through to the glory and praise of your risen son, Benjamin and Brooke. We wrote that three or four, maybe I guess it's doing the math here, maybe five months before we were married. And I found in here on January 16th, 2005, <laughs> prayer for an engineering job for me. And then you can't really see it. Some of you in the front row can see the highlighted ones. We, we would highlight and then put a date when the Lord would answer prayer. So May 1st, 2005, I found a job, which was a big deal <laughs> when you're graduating from college and you want someone to pay you. Um, <laughs> Because you're about to be married, and you're, you know, you're going to move, and the jobs are good things. I won't humor you with all of these. There's a ton of them. But I want to draw your attention to number 47. I took this off and read through most of these, and it caught my eye. May 8th, 2005. This is from Rockbridge State Park, which none of you really know, but my wife does. Uh, My wife and I prayed number 47 for Ben's shoulder, that it would be healed. (laughs) Some of you are busy, you're like, I don't know why this is funny. Um, Would be healed and that we would trust God about Big 12s, which um, was just a week or two away. Big 12, the conference championship track and field meet, which I had been training for for five years. And uh, just days before May 8th, had ripped my shoulder out of the socket and tore my chest muscle off the bone, which we didn't really know. Um, They just thought I'd be fine and I wasn't fine. And October 11th of 2019, uh, which is why you were laughing, um, I had... a a surgery to fix it. And today it feels stronger than it has in 15 years. It's funny the way the Lord answers prayers sometimes. And and again, I won't keep going. But I just highlight those to say, God is the God who answers prayers. You know, I often find myself in those sacred 10 or 15 minutes before a wedding with the bride and the bridesmaids and then I go off and I find the groom and the groomsmen and we pray. And sometimes I say it out loud, sometimes I don't say it out loud, but I'm I'm often thinking and praying it silently. As we lay hands on that groom and pray prayers, you know, for fidelity in marriage, for servanthood, for forgiveness, because they're going to need forgiveness. And for that groom to be a servant leader as he leads his wife and potentially a family in the gospel. 
what I often find myself praying is that, Lord, long after we have forgotten the specifics of the prayers or, or being prayed, would you remember them and answer them? God is the God who answers prayers. If this was a topical sermon on prayer or a book or something else longer, maybe there'd be more time to tease out the nuances of this. Well, what does it mean when God, it feels like he hasn't answered prayers? Well, those are worthwhile questions, usually not asked from someone who has the academic question of, it doesn't, you know, he's feeling like he's not answering them, right? I think God's always answering prayers. Sometimes the answer is just not what we wanted at the time. But he hears and he knows and he is good. Let's talk about this other point, the God whose grace can't be stopped. Gamaliel is an interesting dude in this passage, right? He comes sort of out of nowhere in the book of Acts and he's not, he doesn't really show up again except as a passing reference in chapter 22. The apostle Paul becomes a Christian. He's not a Christian yet at this point. He becomes a Christian and in chapter 22 he says, my main teacher in um, Jewish law was Gamaliel. This, this teacher of teachers. It was a big deal. You read that from the way he's introduced. He says he's a man held in honor by all the people. I won't read what he says there, just in the interest of time. My first, ser- first, ser- we, uh, first service sermon probably went too long, so I'll try and tighten this up a little bit. But, but Acts chapter 5, he stands up and he says, well, there were these guys, they did some things, and it was good or bad, but it doesn't really matter because when the guy died, the thing died. Right, that's his point. It happened twice. He gives two examples. So, therefore, let's just let this go. We tried once warning him. It didn't really work. They're continuing to preach. They seem pretty, you know, hell-bent or heaven-bent on it. You know, depends on perspective right there. Um, to continue to preach. And so, let's let it go because... Really, if God's behind it, there's no way we can stop it. Now, just a fascinating detail of God's providence in this passage to me is that it seems, it doesn't, this is seems, this is think, this is perhaps, so this is not for sure do I know, but it seems like they don't really, they're not won over by his logic. You don't have the audience going, yeah, you're right. We don't want to, you know, God forbid we be found opposing God. I think what's happening going, he seems really important. The people like him. We should like him too. Let's just try his advice out because we love what the praise of men. Like, I really think that's what's going on. We spent a whole sermon on jealousy a couple weeks ago. And then in chapter um, 5, verse 17, it names it explicitly. They're jealous. And all throughout the passage, they're influenced. They want to do this, but they can't because of the people. They want to do this, but they can't because of the people. And then a really important person stands up and they say, well, I guess we better just do this. You don't get the impression that they're cut to the heart with repentance and say, oh, we almost could have been founding opposing God here. And I just take that as an encouragement to you that, that God in his providence is using even their sin of jealousy to make his plan unstoppable. And it's not simply his plan. It's his grace. It's his gospel. The angel tells them in verse 20, go into the temple and speak to the people all of the words of this life. The ESV puts that as a capital L. I don't even know why, except they consider it a proper noun. Like, sort of if you ever read the Declaration of Independence, they're always capitalizing and uncapitalizing things. You're like, why? We don't do it that way. It's like, I don't know why they did that except to say, it's a big deal. Life. Not just, just, not just you know, life and good advice. This is, this is life that is truly life. Perhaps echoing John 
14.6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the middle of the passage, they speak of Jesus being crucified on this tree, which is this reference to an Old Testament passage where in the Old Testament it says that anyone who is crucified or hung on a tree, it says at the time, because crucifixion didn't exist in Deuteronomy 21 yet, but it says anyone hung on a tree is cursed by God. And you realize in this strange way, again, God is subverting uh, expectations that we would think that anyone hung on a tree is cursed by God And yet, the Son of God is loved by God. Cursed for a moment, perhaps, but loved for all of eternity. And working our salvation in strange and beautiful ways. Ironic ways. The passage ends in verse 42. They're preaching. What are they preaching? What is the content of their preaching? Specifically, it says, teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's an odd phrase to us because we usually just think of the Christ as his last name, right? Jesus Christ, Benjamin Verbacek, Jesus Christ, right? Christ is a title. It's this Old Testament phrase that this is, it means Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. So what they're doing is preaching Jesus as, or the Christ as Jesus, and Jesus as the Christ is they're saying this Old Testament truth is all true in him. From beginning to end in this passage, We see the work of God, unstoppable. When I was interviewed here um, six years ago as a pastor, uh, our youth group meant, uh, we we would joke about our satellite campus. (laughs) Just remember, it was not a very fancy satellite campus. It was in a neighborhood. You had to like walk through the neighborhood and if you could find it, then you could go to youth group. Um, And and so I went down there and, and, and was being introduced and I hadn't been hired yet, just meeting people. And, you know, they're asking questions, just fun, get to know you questions. Say, well, you're a pastor, what's your favorite verse? Uh, and I remember, you know, you ask, a, it's a big book, there's a lot of verses in there, I kind of like a lot of them. Um, but I remember thinking at the time, and I think it would still be near, <laughs> somewhere in the top ten, it comes from the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament right before 400 years of silence, waiting for the Messiah to arrive. And through the prophet Malachi, God speaks to his people in a dark time and promises them this word of hope. Malachi chapter 1 verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, God says. And in every place where incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. It says this to a little group of believers in a little country that's been through a lot of hard things. And God promises that he's going to do something special through them, through his Messiah. There's a story of Randy Alcorn. I don't know how many people know that name. He's an author. Wrote a really big fat book about heaven and a lot of other books detail many people don't know about his life, though, is that uh, years ago he was doing some pro-life ministry and a lawsuit was leveled against him and he and his um, family and, and it, it went through. And, and so um, massive amount of money owed. And the only way he could live and not have his wages garnished to pay for this was to um, be paid minimum wage. 
So he went for decades with his family living on minimum wage. Um, not because, you know, he was, um, you know, he had skills and expertise, so to speak, to have other jobs. But he chose instead to continue in Christian ministry and drawing a, a minimum wage. And he was able um, to come up with an arrangement where he could sign away all of the royalties from his books over to a, an organization that would do Christian ministry that then he would work for. And so it grew into this organization that employed tons of people because over these years, his book royalties totaled over $8 million, which is crazy. Um, in the world of Christian publishing, that's a lot of money. It, the settlement recently just lapsed out of effect, and he's able now um, to serve the Lord for more than minimum wage. But he just, I just think about the way that through all sorts of obstacles, um, I just, I'll tell you, I went to a hospital recently to visit one of our, the people at our church and Randy Alcorn's book on heaven was sitting on one of our person's uh, um, hospital bed ministering. St- heard a story a little more close to home this week. Um, a, a Christian here at our church told me the story of an atheist he, he knows who encouraged a, a, someone who was having a hard time to go talk to this Christian. <laughs> And uh, because he thought the Christian might be able to help them. And um, the person became a Christian. And they're inviting other family members into that uh, meeting for counseling. Just amazing the way the Lord works, often in ironic ways. You look at even this passage in the book of Acts. The Sadducees, I mentioned this when I was preaching about them a few weeks ago, didn't believe in angels and a number of other things. And it says that the Sadducees locked them up in prison. Next verse, an angel of the Lord let them out. <laughs> that detail is not lost on the first hearers. God is the God who answers prayers and whose grace can't be stopped and the God who changes lives. Last point. There's this courtyard scene in the Gospels where Jesus is arrested in the same court who's trying these Christians right now was trying Jesus and they, you know, they move through uh, that exchange and, and, and he's eventually crucified the next day. But there's this scene in the courtyard from uh, chapter 26 in the book of Matthew. You don't need to flip there, but, but Peter is on trial while Jesus is on trial. Right? They keep asking Peter, do you know the guy? Do you know Jesus is what they say? And it's interesting what Peter responds. Three times he's asked the question and three times he responds. But he can't even say Jesus' name. He can't even say, he can't even bring himself not only to identify with Jesus, but just to say his name. Matthew 26, verse 69, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. And he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. Like, I don't even understand the question. <laughs> and then another person asks, another servant girl says, no, I recognize your accent. You were with him. Says, but he denied it. Third time, he begins to call curses down on himself. And he says, um, essentially, I swear I don't know the, the man of whom you speak. <laughs> now you flip over to Acts chapter 5 again. Or maybe you never left. But Acts chapter 5, look with me at verses 27 through 31. This man who was trembling with fear and couldn't bring himself to say Jesus' name. Look how this exchange goes. Not outside the court, but in the room with them. 
And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this man <clears throat> excuse me, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now who can't say the name? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. In other words, God makes all the difference here. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The leaders can't say his name, but Peter can. And I think if we pulled Peter aside at the end of this passage, He's been beaten, and there's a trail of blood around him, and he's rejoicing, worthy, being considered worthy to suffer for Jesus. And we just said, Peter, like you've, you've changed. I think Peter would smile and say, I know. I know. Isn't God good? I don't think we have to imagine that, though, because later in the book of Acts, chapter 10, Peter preaches, he becomes a big deal. In this preaching event, it's such a powerful event that one of the men just comes and falls at Peter's feet as though to worship him, and Peter looks at him and says, stand up. I, too, am a man, chapter 10, verse 26. Peter, you've changed, they say. I know. Isn't God good? Well, as a pastor, I have all sorts of inside details about you <laughs> that you probably don't know about each other. Uh, I'm not stalking your social media accounts, though. I haven't called references on you. Don't worry. I just know some of you are going through hard things. Some of you are going through very hard things. And I don't have all the answers to help make all of your hard things go away. I don't have life hacks. I don't have 10 steps to level up to a new level of awesomeness, right? I like that. But that's not what I have. What we have is God's spirit and God's word and the gospel. In chapter three, Peter um, saw the, 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 this crippled laying at the temple courts and really what started the whole chain of events to even where we're at now in chapter five. And the guy wants money, and Peter says, silver and gold, I have none, but what I do have, I give to you. He gives him Jesus. He doesn't have what the world has to offer. He has something better and bigger. Kent Hughes, when he talked about this passage, he spoke of the knowledge of God giving these disciples a buoyancy. I like that word. It, it, when you think about being buoyant, float right? Think about a bobber or on a fishing line or, or maybe a buoy in the ocean. It doesn't mean that the waves aren't going to crash, but there's this buoyancy of floating back up to the surface, and the knowledge of God gave them buoyancy, and I hope it does the same for you and I. I want to pray and invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in one more song. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, I think about that quote from Tozer. And maybe it's overstated for effect, maybe it's not. Because I know that what I think about you influences how I interact with everyone. It influences how I act when everyone's watching and when no one's watching. Lord, I pray that the knowledge of who you really are, the God who loves to answer prayers, the God whose grace can't be stopped, and the God who changes lives, I pray that the knowledge of that God would encourage us and give us the buoyancy we need Not simply to go out there and serve you, although, yes, go out, let let us go out and serve you and tell others. But simply just to cultivate joy for our own lives and for our own walks with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.